welcome to episode 81 of Attention Plus with Arnabre. We are recording on the 19th of April 2020. And on WhatsApp Geeks this week, Vinayak and I discuss the iPhone SE and OnePlus 8 and give you some really cool app and game recommendations. And on Binjon, Rajeshwari recommends some really nice Indian movies for children. So search for Binjon and WhatsApp Geeks on your podcast player. And if it seemed that I was rushing through with that, with that it's with very good reason. We have a very special guest today and uh, it's got me very, very excited. So uh, let me get our host in to get us started. Hey, Arnab. Hello. Hello, everyone. So, yes, we have a special guest today. Um, and again, this is not going to be one of the COVID-19 themed uh, podcast episodes because we've had quite a few of them. Uh, so this time we will not be saying, oh, well, we might come to something about COVID-19. But what, what the person, the guest we have today is somebody who been, I've been trying to get on the show for a long, long time. It's uh, Joy Bhattacharya who I think is now the CEO of the Indian Volleyball League. He's In the past, he's been associated with the Under-17 uh, World Cup, Football World Cup, bringing it to India. Um, and of course, most of you would, would know him as the CEO of uh, my favorite IPL team, Kolkata Knight Riders. And the first time I met Joy, I mean, I never, I, we didn't talk, but he, he, he's also a legendary uh, quizzer, the more international, I think, trivia buff. And uh, he... He used to be on this team called Vevictis. Um, I, I hope I'm I'm pronouncing it correct. And uh, he 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 was a, he came to this quiz in Indian Institute of Management, Calcutta. I was just in, I think I was in high school or first year of college. And I remember seeing him. I mean, I didn't I didn't remember I didn't know who he was. But years later, when I saw a picture of that that event, I recognized. Hey, that's Joy. <laughs> so um, thank you for coming, Joy. My pleasure, absolutely, Anna. Pleasure being here. All right. So, without further ado, I would just like to kind of uh, j- jump into the question. So, tell us something about the Indian Volleyball League and w- what have you been doing recently? So, basically, the Pro Volleyball League is this league we've started in Indian Volleyball. And volleyball is an interesting sport because it's one of the few sports in India which is played really actively in schools and colleges because every you know college has a volleyball court because it's one of the easiest very resource slow just like football you just need a net and you know the ground even if it's a bit upside down it doesn't matter uh, the thing is after you finish school and you finish college once you actually go out there's no volleyball on television at all and we found that that's interesting i mean there's an opportunity there and we started working in volleyball is one of the most played games in the world because as a recreational sport you can play it again at many levels you don't need to be an expert to play volleyball you can play it just getting the ball across the net or you can play it seriously well so we started doing that and uh, we put together the first uh, series of the volleyball the pro volleyball league we had olympians from america come in that's the other interesting thing you see sport when you play sport in india if you have to attract the best players in the world to come in and play, it's very difficult normally because the prices just are prohibitive. So, for example, even in football, even if the ISL brings wants to bring really good footballers, you know, they can't bring top-level footballers there because the cost of top-level footballers is prohibitive. Fortunately, the cost of top-level volleyball players, once you got past the first 50 or 60, is not that much. So, we could get really top-level Olympians coming into India to play this league. It was fantastic. We did the first season in 2019 and it just went like a dream. It was so good and we did things that, you know, things have not done before in international volleyball. We got a special point where teams could call for a double point. There's a lot sort of double or quits point where they could take double points if they you know, chose to, you know, play that their card on that particular point. And, uh, the International Volleyball Federation was so happy with it that they came down to see the finals in Chennai. And it was crazy. 6,000 screaming fans. Volleyball is very big down south. So, Chennai, uh, Kerala, two teams, Kochi and Calicut, Hyderabad, all of them, they were fantastic teams. And it was a fantastic competition. So, obviously, 2020 has been hit by you know COVID and a lot of other things. But uh, we are just waiting to see things settle down. But uh, volleyball is one of those games which I think has a great future in India. And the second really important reason why we latched on to it is a it's a television friendly sport it looks good on tv and mm-hmm. the indian standard is not that far away from world standard you know one of the problems with indian football used to be that you saw indian football compared to world football and it didn't look 
close to being that good Absolutely. that gap is much less in volleyball and that's important that's that's in so so how does so how are franchises made is it made the same way as ipl that there are people who bid for each of the city franchises or how yeah, does that work exactly almost the same way and like ronnie stovala owned the mumbai franchise the mutut group owns the kochi franchise what happens effectively is that they went uh, we found franchises uh, they bid for the franchise in their various cities they picked up a team there was an auction they picked up players from the auction what we did for international players is we did a draft for international players because we knew that we wanted top players so you know people will not put their name into a new league just to be auctioned first up and that's true mm-hmm. of the ipl as well in fact in the first year of the ipl the players were all guaranteed money players like warn and uh, magrao guaranteed money whether somebody picked them or not and similarly so we had a draft for the top international players and after that it works just like that you play the only difference is ipl plays home and away which is you know takes it to every stadium but leagues which are smaller in mm-hmm. india which like even kabaddi they play on what we call the caravan system that means you play all the teams play in a particular location for a while then they move to the next location and it saves a lot of costs in terms of television costs and uh, those costs in terms of uh, basically the arrangement cost and that uh, that is the only thing that even kabaddi does volleyball does badminton does they they use a sort of caravan system moving from place to place but otherwise it's very similar to the ipl in terms of format it's that's interesting so before that you were associated with the under 17 fifa world cup right so tell us something about that experience oh that was absolutely incredible because you know we came there and uh, you see uh, i i i know a little bit about the football people out there because i consulted with some people in football and therefore i was aware of the all india football federation so when they decided to do an under 17 world cup one of the guys out there runs the i league friend of mine called shunando called up and said you know they're probably going to bring a world cup to india so are you interested so it just was one of those things i just said why why not i mean that day that was the year that kkr was basically we won the ipl and we were doing very well we were at that point in time almost reaching the we were reaching we were close to the finals of the champions league as well mm-hmm. and i applied because i said that you know first fifa event in india is something and i was there in the first ipl it's not a bad thing to be there for the first fifa event in india and as it turned out uh, it was very interesting because what other people take junior world cups as is junior world cups but for india the way we look at looked at it was very different we said this is basically got to be the most attended junior event in the world we don't look at it as junior event we look at it as a senior world cup because even the under 17 players in the world players of that stature will never come to india have never come to india in the past i mean they have in the 80s and all you've had some nehru cup some good teams come but right you know top level competition teams coming into india like this quality we won't have and that's where the journey started and uh, as i said it was very strongly to say we will do this right there will be no bribery there will be no government you know we will not allow corruption we'll run it cleanly we'll run it well stadiums will be clean and touch wood we 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 managed to pull it off and uh, it's an incredible stat it sounds very very unbelievable it's true more people in stadiums watch the 2017 under 17 football world cup than watched the 2011 cricket world cups in stadiums in india it's an incredible wow. stat but it's true it's a, we had about 1.39 million people visiting the stadiums and of course there's a reason for it because see in india only india games used to be full mm-hmm. but here in kolkata the england games used to be full the brazil games used to be full all over the country the games of the top other teams ghana was full spain was full so lots of teams had you know supporters coming in and saying that you know we will not get to see this quality of football so it was an incredible experience so so do you think we will will ever have the fifa senior world cup in india given that we had because i used to hear growing up that one of the conditions this is when i used to studiously read every issue of sports star was that the thing was first do an u17 world cup successfully and then uh then we'll think about it so now that that's been done successfully what do you think our chances are ever see the problem is basically that our, our team is too far away i mean we have a better chance of doing a senior women's world cup because see 
our team is 101st 102nd you know somewhere there in the world now you know it reached in its peak it reached 97 98 football is the most contested game in the world in that sense mm-hmm. now i'll give you a little insight and we we'll, you know then you make make out how you know our politicians and our sports federations tend to you know totally underestimate this when japan started that 1994 if you remember kashima antlers they started the j league okay mm-hmm. in the early 90s when they said that you know we are going to put a j league food and all they had a 100 year plan to win the world cup a 100 year plan that means they're saying that before 2090 we will win a world cup that is the level of how long it takes to really make a difference in a sport like football which the whole world plays you know tomorrow if you want to say i want to be the canoeing champion probably you can divert enough resources so many resources into canoeing that you know your guys can keep winning it and you just have so many people canoeing that you get more talent but for something like football where anyway there are so many people so japan has recently revised their estimate and said that we could win a world cup by 2050 but that's 60 years away from where they started working so look we are before we reach the top 50 in terms of just ranking of a team before india reaches if if we don't even reach the top 15 in football we should not even think of doing a world cup because it would be an embarrassment to us playing with teams that much better than us so i think the base big big problem is not that we can organize it i'm sure we can organize it we we are indians we've handled big weddings for all our lives <laughs> we can handle a world cup that's not a problem but to have a world cup we need an indian team that's deserving of playing with the pre teams that come and i think that's where we are very far away okay that's i think that's i think that's a valid point um, i think maybe that's the reason why we never get it i always used to feel when i was growing up when will we see a football no, world cup an interesting thing take it from me after working with fifa seeing fivb saying these people every sports federation and his brother wants a tournament in india india is the largest uncaptured market it's only cricket it's a huge market it's a huge middle class base i mean i don't know the events of you know corona and all that might impact it but it's going to impact the rest of the world india is the largest largest market which is still in many sporting terms comparatively virgin okay and it's not extreme it does not have extreme control government control as say china does so you if fifa had a chance to do a world cup in india legitimately they would do it tomorrow that's not the problem the problem just is that the indian team needs to be good enough for it not to be an embarrassment yes, i think we are i think we are 100 years away at least <laughs> not for winning the world cup but at least coming to that at, at least competitive level i i i'm presuming i i don't know i mean that's what i'm saying but it's it's not that's what i'm saying it's not it's not 5 years 10 years it's 15 years 20 years that's a kind of time it takes to even make a it takes a generation to change sport around and and then a couple of generations for us to hone that this thing because you know first you start getting better then you know when you start getting better you still lose crucial games because you don't have the experience of playing in big matches then you learn to win in big matches so it's a it's a long long you know it's a long haul and our problem in india is we want something now two years one year three years it doesn't happen sport doesn't work that way yeah that is absolutely true i think people are little again i think people are a little spoiled by cricket because you know of course cricket is not that intensely uh, com- you know there's there's not so many countries competing but i think people use as a frame of reference what happened to us in 1983 where we obviously before that nobody we didn't play one day cricket at all i mean terribly i would say just like we play football nowadays and then we just won the cup and and, and of course everything changed after that but i doubt that would have happened in i doubt that a team like india could go on i mean in 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 a soccer football analog that would ever happen there's just too many things to happen too many things need to align for that to happen yeah i also see what also happened in cricket is you're right there are only 10 12 countries that play cricket really seriously you know that's one thing and even if you see the countries that played seriously in england if you see the comparative interest in cricket versus football there is no comparison i mean even a cricket like or even in australia australia cricket is big but cricket uh, australian rules football is just as big rugby is just as big basketball is huge 
football is getting bigger and bigger because of the immigrants a lot of the immigrants love football so it's not that it's it's not a one horse race that literally cricket is in india today and that's one of the things that makes a difference i think india and pakistan i guess would be the two countries where this is the, the two very populous countries sri lanka also where cricket lanka, and nothing else bangladesh Bangladesh, Bangladesh, because Bangladesh, not for anything else, their football is not great quality. They play a lot of football, they just don't take quality football. Right. So there are four countries in this area, very populous, with a growing middle class base that that has cricket and nothing else after that. Absolutely. So this is a nice seg- segue into into IPL and and and, and cricket. So. The, f- the question that I've always wanted to ask you is, how is a day in the life of uh, of, of somebody like you and, and as an IPL CEO? And what kind of issues do you normally deal with during the season? Okay, firstly, I was a director, not a CEO. In those days, we didn't okay. CEO. I was just director. But that's okay. I mean, I was running the team at that point in time. So, see, look, the big thing is that the IPL is a very intense, say, two-month window. And in IPL... During the IPL, very little coaching is done. So that's one of the reasons why you'll see it's very interesting. You take somebody like a Gary Kirsten. He was a very successful coach for India, but so far he's not been successful coaching an IPL team. And one of the reasons is that Gary Kirsten works best sitting and explaining and working with one young players over 8, 9, 10 months. The IPL is this two-month window where players from around the world, players from different uh, levels of income, different levels of skill, they're thrown together for two months and you've got to make a team and make it work. It helps if they know each other from the previous year, but even if they do, they have to sort of relearn, re-remember their partnerships and all. So what happens a lot in the IPL is it's management. It's management of firstly workload, you know, in terms of physical workload. It's played in the most taxing season in India. Okay, so it's April, May, June is the worst season in India. So hydration, you know, keeping the players out of injury, hydrated, healthy, that's a huge part of the IPL. Within that, finding limited practice opportunities. Then within that, you've got a lot of sponsor commitments as well. So you've also got to schedule players who have to go and make this sponsor commitment because, you know, how are you going to pay the bills if you don't have that? So... The IPL in those two months is a very cramped calendar of travel, fitness, hydration, sleep, rest, because rest is the best way of doing it, playing matches, and then again, making sure that you do your sponsor commitments there. So it can be crazy. So typically, we wouldn't have a sponsor commitment the day we play a game. But uh, on the day of a game, it's all about the game. But on other days, you could be traveling in the morning. You try not to actually travel before 12, 1 o'clock because players like to sleep in and the IPL calendar is a very late calendar because matches end at 11-12, players sleep at 3-4. So generally in an IPL team, life starts at 11-30-12. So if you're not playing at 11-30-12, players will literally have lunch. They'd sort of relax. They might be having a, a net session in the evening. They might come back. A couple of players may be taken away for a sponsor commitment. What we also do is make sure that not all players are involved in all sponsor commitments. So we spread them out to make sure that everyone gets enough rest and everyone gets a break. And uh, it's just that. It's working out the travel, the schedule, the arrangements. It's a very packed schedule. And within that, you've got to give the players some peace and some calm. So it's, that's, that's your this thing. So the rest of the staff is like always working like crazy to make sure that happens. So what kind of... I mean, who does the... So I've always been fascinated with... The people management aspect of it. You have a most teams have a number of like prima donnas, very successful people, and they, they normally play with other successful people in the national side. But they're then people who are perhaps their first season of Ranji or have come from the you know the under nineteen World Cup. You know how do you I mean, who handles who's responsible for making sure that that they kind of communicate with each other? Because you know in a in a typical office environment, it's like putting the CEO, the one vice president, uh, two fresh interns and putting them and making them do something together. It's it's never work. (laughs) Yeah. So in fact, I'll take that analogy a bit further. Not only is this office intern, not only is this office intern going to be sitting with the CEO of the firm, he could possibly be playing when the CEO is not playing. I mean, a great example is the 2012 IPL final 
where Brendan McCullum had to sit out because the problem was that uh, Balaji got injured, so we didn't have a fast bowler. Bretley came in. We could play only four foreigners. The other three foreigners were Sunil Narayan, Shakib, and Callis, who had to play. So McCullum had to sit out, and uh, Bisla played the final. Of course, he did brilliantly, and he won India, he won KK at the final. But that's how it is. So not only does the CEO mix with these people, he actually may sit out. So fortunately, two things. One is that whichever coach does this has to be a really good man manager. So if you're running it, you've got to be a really good man manager of people because it's not easy to do it. So the only thing that you can be is very transparent and honest and say, these are the rules. If it was different, of course, Brendan McCullum would be playing ahead of Manvinder Pisla, but these are the rules and this is what is happening at this point in time. And therefore, seven Indians have to play and this is what it happens. So one is you as transparent as possible about why players are playing, why players are not playing. Secondly, you make sure that the rest of it, they're played vastly different salaries. But you make sure the rest of it is the same. So, for example, if a team, if the team travels, in KKR, the rule was everyone travels the economy. Everyone travels together. The people who get the longer seats also in economy, the seats with more legroom, are players who are normally fast bowlers or players who have bad knees, who need that place, that extra space. Okay? And it was done strictly on that, not on who was senior, who was less senior. When Shah Rukh Khan used to ever want to give a gift to anyone, say an iPad or something, he used to say, if you're gifting the captain of the team, you must gift the security manager who works with the team as well. Because that's the only way you can make sure that they're all equal. Players had to eat together or when they ate, they will always eat with the same. I mean, the rules were the same. So the idea is you try and make sure that in those special circumstances, everything else is equal and you're as transparent to the players as possible as to why they're playing and why they're not playing. It's still not easy. Some coaches manage it better. Some coaches don't. It all depends on, you know, and it also depends on how well your team is doing. Because if the team is doing badly, more sulking will happen. If the team is winning, people sort of say, okay, fine, let's go along. So, so what kind of, so this is a very interesting thing. So it's the coach who does the man management. So, so since you've been with the IPL for several years and you've seen a lot of coaches, I'm not asking you to name people by name, but what kind of characteristics does a good IPL coach have? You just started off with saying Gary Kirsten needs time. So even though he's a you know great coach, otherwise it's, it's not. I'm guessing he's not su- he's not that suited for the limited time window that you get for IPL. So what kind of good? What's a good IPL coach? When what would yeah, what are the characteristics? A good IPL coach is a guy who can sort of see and judge talent extremely quickly because he's got to know who's going to give him value. Now it's very easy. Nine places in any team or eight or nine places are decided. They're just. Four of them will be international players who everyone knows his class and other three Indian quality players. So seven, eight players go like that. The last two, three, you probably pick up from a, from a group of players who may not have seen the big stage as these other eight, nine players have been. So you've got to very quickly say that these are the guys who under pressure might probably be able to give me something to take my team over the top. That's one. So they've got to be a good judge of talent. They've got to be extremely good managers of nets and also... You can't, I have not seen, and this is this is what I believe in so far. In KKR, the, the rule was, see, every team, there are different teams have different sort of management styles. So, if you look at Bombay, Mumbai is a very owner-driven team. That means the owners bring a particular way of functioning, which now permeates into the entire team. The owner's call is very much the thing. Okay? In... Uh, there are other teams which are very coach-driven teams. Uh, Sunrises Hyderabad tended to be that under Tom Modi. Very coach-driven. Tom, Lakshman, uh, Muthai Murlidharan, they would take the decision. Very coach-driven what the coach thinks, what he doesn't. In KKR, when we were successful, it was a very, very captain-driven team. The coach understood what the captain wanted. Their job was to give the captain the resources and ability to do it, to plan the nets, to put it together. But once you anoint a captain, you give him his head and say, okay, your job is to go and deliver. And it's uh, Chennai is also very similar to that. It's a captain-driven team. So these are different cultures which different organizations have. So a coach in a captain-driven team, his job is to basically make sure the rest of it all works fine. 
and the captain gets what he wants to deliver on the field sure that's <clears throat> that's that's an in, that's that's an interesting perspective so this the the next question that i've always been always wanted to ask you was tell us something about the auctions you know how do you prepare for it and how do things go south i mean i'm pretty sure they go go south sometimes and and how do you immediately react to something going south so walk us through it so what happens basically in auctions is that uh, how in fact i got into the ipl because of auctions because in 2001 to i started a game in while i was at espn star sports called uh, super selector which was all about you know choosing players and finding creating weights for players and also i figured out soon enough that you know in an ipl that's exactly how it operates that you the only difference is if i take a player you can't take the same player but auctions are a very interesting thing because see the thing about it is given the way auction dynamics work out here it's not a lot of it is has got to be also very very reactive to what other teams are doing or what's happening so what you need to do is you need to decide and one of the things that we learned was that you can't the biggest mistake in an auction x player moment you do that you're putting yourself into a corner which is very difficult to get out of so what you need to say instead is or what used to work for us in kkr at least when we had our successful auctions was we used to make a position so we said we want a wicketkeeper opening batsman okay and say that okay that's now our list of wicketkeeper opening batsman this player is top of our list this player is number 2 this player is number 3 this player is number 4 and if that number one player say went for too expensive our cut off price was beyond that we wouldn't go the danger in auctions is basically that you spend too much on a player or you spend on a player where the difference does not really matter so by that i mean for example in 2011 when we went for the auction we realized that the one thing kkr never had was indian batters so we said we'll break the bank and get two indian batters no matter what it was so then what happens is that we bid 2.4 million dollars to get uh, gautam gambhir in a 2.1 for yusuf pathan mm-hmm. now that's a lot of money out of 8 million we spent 4.5 on that and we spent another 1.5 on drug calls so 5.6 million dollars we spent on three players and you'd say that's suicidal it's not because what we realized is there were many other categories where once you go past there are one or two sort of player changing game changing players okay which is impossible to talk about for example a game changing player like i'd say lasit malinga is a game changing player if you get lasit malinga you take him at whatever cost but if once you get past lasit malinga the difference between say a dirk nanes to a brett lee to another fast bowler to an andrew tai is not that very much so there's no point paying a huge premium for an international fast bowler similarly there's no point paying a huge premium for an international middle order batsman because once you got past say a game changer like pollard all the rest of them you wanted a good international batsman you might pay 700000 for it but at 300000 also you will get a good player so that's how we actually broke it down and said that we will pay big money only for positions where there is actually no replacement so we knew that there are only five indian player batsmen in the auction the rest of them were already retained of these five indian batsmen we needed to so things a lot of things go wrong because of this because you know what could happen is that you set your cap on one particular player and that player just goes so high that you have no money to do anything else so those things happen but uh, it is a fascinating dynamic and very often really good teams sometimes just completely unravel on the auction tables so who takes these decisions is it the owner who takes these decisions as to what is the maximum cap or does the captain take or no i think i think it's again it's very dynamic and depends from team to team i think owners definitely take a decision but you know crazy things can also happen in the auction i remember once that uh, in the 2011 auction they they said there were fixed prices for domestic players and actually anil kumble was sitting in the auction for rcb and he had a fixed price for the five or six domestic players he had kept away some money for him to buy those domestic players 
and i remember that 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 particular auction mohammed kef was not taken and then his name came up for auction again and basically the idea was that uh, pune warriors wanted to take him and they bid on it and for some reason then another team bid on it as well and for a player who nobody was interested in part one two teams had bid seeing this vijay malya thought it was a joke and thought he had some auction purse left and uh, he overbid both of them and he took kef and what happened as a result is what he didn't realize is that that money he had saved up that was sitting in the auction purse of rcb had been earmarked by anil kumble to buy domestic players and he had eaten up almost half of that purse by buying mohammed kef on a whim and that's what can happen if you're basically it doesn't matter whether the owners in charge the coaches in charge the captain but if you're not in sync dangerous things like this can happen so are you i've seen some people using a f- cell phone to call out are you allowed to call out of the room for yeah you are allowed to call out you are allowed to call out of the room you are allowed to call anywhere the, there's no problem at all but uh, i mean it's up to you to do what call you take what call generally kkr didn't use cell phones to ever ever talk about this thing because i think in that sense we were very much a captain driven team in terms of the captain decided the kind of team he wanted and it was the rest of our staff's job was the strategy of saying how do we get as many of the players as our captain wants that's how we we used to look at it. so sometimes i have this question that you know some of the under 19 world cup players go for insane amounts insane amounts so the question is do they get and the next season they're gone they they possibly play one game where they don't do too well and and then they're gone so what happens to that insane amount is that prorated per season or how how, how do they get paid or do yeah. they just so, get look, so one is that the every contract can be renewed or not renewed every year by the team the player doesn't have the option the team has the option they're normally three year contracts if it's in the first year and the decision on retaining the player for the second year or the third year is dependent on the team within playing also there's a certain amount of proration that happens so you get a certain amount of fixed money 50% of it is fixed but the rest of it is also proportional to the number of matches you play and this is a rule that keeps this thing so it's definitely i mean that they are not if they get a million dollars say on the if they are supposed to be paid a million dollars they are not going to get a million dollars they'll probably get 500000 and a little more if they played those three four matches if they haven't played all their matches if they play all the matches they get all the money that's how it works Okay, so that's a maximum, basically. Yeah, right? that's really a maximum. That's like your stretch target. Basically, you match, you get your stretch target, play all fourteen games. That's what you get. Okay, so is it is 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 an auction thing? Is it very stressful? Because I sometimes see that I feel that people, some people are get extremely stressed, and at least I can remember at least one or two cases again as an external observer where I. but i felt that they kind of deviated off the script and get into this kind of yeah you can you can <laughs> pressure can get to you <laughs> pressure can get to you it's it's tough and i've seen i've seen if you look at delhi and i think delhi is a class example delhi in 2011 when they went into auction just look at the delhi team sitting in delhi gautam gambhir virendra sehwag abd villiers that abd villiers Shikhar Dhawan, T M Dilshan, Dirk Nannis, Daniel Vettori, Mitun Minas, so a lot of Indian players as well. They had a crack team. Okay, they had four good Indian bats, two of the top best international bats, one of the wildest spinners, a really good fast bowler, and uh, they just they just kept Sehwag and they unraveled in the auction. Amazingly enough, the next year they went and bought Mahela uh, Jayawardene and Peterson, and actually made up and reached the finals as well. They, they had the best record. But that's what can happen in an auction. You can really go up and down. Yeah, Delhi Daredevils has Delhi Daredevils. I mean, they renamed themselves, but had pretty much every great player that's played in IPL, and they let them go. I think Andre Russell also played for them, right? So. Yeah, yeah, Andre Russell played for them, and actually. I mean, it would be more polite to say Andre Russell didn't play for them. I think he was in their <laughs> team. <laughs> But look, let's be honest. Andre Russell, you know, you talk about it. It's very interesting. Andre Russell played 2014 was his first season with KKR. If you remember, he didn't play much at all during KKR's win in the IPL. 
Hmm? He played very few games because what our problem was, we had Shakib Al Hasan and Stu. You had three all-rounders who almost picked themselves. You had Kalis, Shakib Al Hasan, and uh, uh, this uh, Sunil Narayan who just picked themselves. So basically, you had only one more position to play with. You played a morning marker, a fast bowler. You had to decide on who your fourth bowler was, and. Under these circumstances, you have a Brendan McCallum as well. Sorry, not Brendan. That was this two thousand fourteen. But that's the kind of international player. Players like Lin were there. Only when did he get a chance to play? He got a chance to play in the Champions League that year because Shakib couldn't come, and he got a chance. And the moment he started playing, couple of matches he played, he got his feet, and then after that, the rest is history. So even we had. Andre Russell for one whole IPL where he wasn't really used. Though he won the IPL, Andre Russell in 2014 didn't play a significant part in our win, but he played a huge part in KKR reaching the finals of the Champions League 2014. So look, teams can make that mistake. It's very often that you know they just sit and they have a great player on the bench and they don't even know it. Okay, so the next question is that with with COVID-19 kind of being the existential crisis of our times. um what do you think is the way forward for ipl 2020 and the 2020 world cup which was which was supposed to be coming up i'm pretty sure they're going to I, i mean what do you think is viable for ipl 2020 i'm pretty sure it's going to happen i think there's too much money for it not to happen but how empty stadiums yeah i i think that's the way we have to look at it empty stadiums fewer stadiums definitely i cannot see a home and away format happening It's just too much travel with this, you know, 150, 200, 200 people traveling too many places. I see it happening actually more caravan style. That means playing in one location, maybe packs two locations, so that you contain it. This thing, and I think that's the way we have to look at it. I mean, I think it is more important for sport and in the sporting economy in India for the IPL to happen in some shape or form, rather than to try and do everything and may have the risk of something going wrong and having to cancel it. so but in in cricket does the caravan style work because the pitches will degenerate right over over two yeah, or three games yeah but you look at it what happens is that you basically every ground has about four pitches they normally play only on two but you can use all four so if you have four pitches you basically you play six five six days see remember pitches are meant to last actually if you look at it pitches are meant to last five days test match pitches So, if you prepare feather bed decent pitches, you can prepare four pitches. You can play four five days in one place, definitely. Move to another place, then move to another place. Move together. Don't move. So, what happens is you get a private jet, move all of them together, or you play two sets of group one, group one at one venue, group two at another venue. So, there are ways in which you can minimize the amount of travel you do and the kind of travel you do. You can minimize risk. You can't eliminate risk, but you can minimize risk. Okay, so I wanted to f- finish with kind of a little game, uh, which was who? Like, let's go over each of the individual teams. So here, here's the here's the game. It's who do you think would have been the best T20 players of the 1990s and early 2000s? It's the generation that just missed IPL. So anybody who actually played in IPL is not eligible in this game, even if they played a single game, like let's say Shahid Afri. So who do you think is I always feel that there was this generation that even I grew up on and there were many players there who possibly I mean I'm not talking about somebody like a Brian Lara or somebody who would have been a champion in whatever format he played in but there were some players like let's say Atul Bedade you know who, who looked like he would have been a very good person for five overs but that was pretty much the horizon of how they of the of their effectiveness so I was wondering if you could go over like team by team and look at some hidden gems Yeah, I mean, happy to go. Which team you want to start with? Like South I mean, Africa. I think they had a great T20 team in the 1990s. No, no, they did. I mean, I mean, if you look at it, I mean, going past the obvious, say somebody like you, like look at a Hansik Kronia. Yes, Kronia actually would have been a terrific player because he bowled that stupid, you know, seam up kind of thing, which is very effective in the IPL, taking pace off the ball. Okay, he could hit. He was a middle order bat. He could come and hit in the end. He would have been an ideal finisher at five six, and he could have eased. And he was strong enough to this thing. Brian McMillan, another big guy, arms like buckets, feel yes. well. All rounders are always huge in the IPL, and I think he would have also got serious value out of it. So Derek Crooks, Derek Crooks, if you remember, Nicky Boyer, yeah, Derek Crooks, Pina, 
did a bit with the ball, could hit it, hit it very hard. Actually, Crooks could hit the ball really hard. So yeah, a lot of players. If you go team by team, I mean, uh, I still say Alan Donald definitely because Donald was a he was a strike bowler, and even every format, even the IPL needs really good strike bowlers. I think Alan Donald would have done really well. I think I think Fanny Devilliers as a like a specialist T Twenty bowler. Yes, Fanny also because of the way he's his Yorker used to go. Fanny would have been a good death bowler as well, and that's important because you know the ability to bowl Yorkers' as will is something that death bowlers need. I think Fanny would have been a very good death bowler. And I think at, the, at one point of time, he basically had, if you recall, Sachin Tendulkar's number. He would pretty much get Sachin Tendulkar out with one way and he would bowl a slow ball and Sachin would hit it way high. It would just go up and he would get caught. Well, so has, see, yeah, that's what, you know, we, we, you ask players in India, they say, ball khada ho gaya. The ball stands up. You know? Yeah, you hit it under, it ball will just rise. Yeah. Um, with respect to, let's go to Australia. Who do you... 1990s, early 2000s, who would you say would actually, be yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, uh, Australia, I go back slightly further. There used to be this player called... So, two players I think would have done brilliantly in this format and they're slightly older than that. There's a player in the 80s called Simon O'Donnell. Yes, he was on my list. Simon O'Donnell, yes. So, all-rounder, really hard hitting. Really hard hitting, yes. And would bowl decent medium pace. Simon O'Donnell would have done really well. Dean Jones, because Dean Jones, for all his... This thing is a really smart cricketer. Tom he, Moody also in, in Tom in Moody. That. Tom Moody would have done brilliantly. Tom Moody, in fact, is a perfect cricketer for this format. Six six, big strong guy can hit the ball. Could could bowl three two three overs, and you know what he would do? Tom Moody could literally stand and not bowl his even his medium pace. He could bowl his offies, as they say in India. They say pair pakarna. Just aim at his leg and just keep bowling yorkers at somebody's leg. It's very difficult to get away because. What happens is if you're a spinner, now you're not giving the batsman you know time to sort of cock up and be ready for you. So bowlers like that are very difficult. Another player that I was thinking of was what was Shane Lee, Bradley's elder brother. See, Shane Lee was a very interesting thing because you know I had the opportunity of speaking to Shane Lee when we were recording something for Bradley, and Shane Lee actually would have been very good as an Australian uh, cricketer as well. He played shame, shamefully little Australian cricket and it has nothing to do with Australian cricket. It had to do with his own work ethic and also Shane Lee was, I think, a tragedy for Australian cricket overall, not just for, you know, uh, this thing. Ian Harvey, Ian Harvey is another very effective, yes. great order bat, yes. could hit the ball hard. Could and he had the slow, slow delivery variations. Yeah. Harvey, in fact, is a man who, who's helped a lot with a lot of the new Australian fast bowlers, slower deliveries, you know. He really, really has worked on them because he was reckoned as a specialist of the this guy's slower ball. Okay, moving on, Pakistan. I guess Pakistan. the entire team. I, yeah, I mean, you look at it. I mean, <laughs> Wasim definitely, Wasim Bakar at their prime definitely. And the way they swing Sa- the ball, the way they do it. Saklain the Dusra in a T20 Saklain, game. Saklain would have been a killer. Saklain... Saklain, before he lost, see the problem was Saklain lost his offspin. See, once you lose your offspin, he bowled so many doostas. Saklain, before he lost his offspin, was in the mid-90s the best bowler in the world by far. And in a team that had the like of Vaseem and Vakar and Mushtaq Ahmed, that's not an easy thing to say. But Saklain in his prime was an incredible bowler. Incredible. And limited over. I'm not saying he was a great test bowler, but... As a limited over bowler, he was incredible. He would have been one of the finest. And uh, Abdul Razak and... Razak, Razak, again, very useful. Can bat, can hit the ball, can bowl, can bat at three. Of course, I don't see Abdul Razak batting at three in a T20 match. I see him batting at seven, eight. Useful yes, late be, order would, hitter. Yes, he would be an Andre Russell kind of player. Yeah. yeah. They think even, I mean, against Saeed Anwar, Ijaz Ahmed, all of them... I would think would have been great fits. Yeah, for yeah, I, I, yeah, I think, yeah, I think Inzi would have struggled just, and he did play a bit of T20 with uh, the ICL, but Inzi would have struggled on the field. As a batsman, Inzi would have been devastating in a format like this because you, you know, you had nowhere to bowl to him. You wouldn't have hidden in a match. 20 and overs, you would have just taken them apart. The only thing is, you really would have to hide him on the field. And of course, Wasim Akram, I mean, he would be the, perhaps be the greatest. To- T20 played ever because of the batting and the bowling. Yeah, and Basim, um, I 
remember in, even as late as 2012 he was bowling in the nets i remember i think we were at hyderabad and morgan was batting when morgan was batting and uh, i mean obviously he was kidding around uh, our friend uh, coach trevor bell the sujay said why is just just don't bowl to him because if a 43 year old man comes and start beating him all around every time morgan is just going to go crazy But the fact of the matter is he would literally at that age also just take a ball in his hand and just swing it miles he could do it any time you could wake him up at 12 o'clock at night give a ball in his hand he'd swing the ball and so that's what we would almost we'd say of wasim as it if you could find a way to make him feel even in 2012 2014 he could bowl for a cycle there's no problem at all bowling four overs he could do in his sleep any time any time Okay. Um, moving on, Indian players who you who you think could have been, I mean, Ajay Jadeja, of course, comes to mind. I think Jadeja, perfect, perfect player. He would have been a good captain because he's a great thinker of the game. So I give him credit for that. Explosive hitter as a Vakar Yunus, this thing, somebody uh-huh. who would just think, move with the game, uh, useful with the ball. So he wouldn't bowl as much as he would have probably bowled. He's more of a change bowler. I, I can't see him being a front line. I see him sharing the sort of fifth bowler duties with somebody. uh i think srinath would have been again very good and because srinath had that big in swinger is more difficult to get away in conditions like this just bowling i don't think i mean venkatesh prasad looks effective but the problem with venkatesh prasad is if they if they spotted his slower ball and remember now now it's much easier to spot slower ball because so much video the players have of the players so maybe prasad's slower ball would not have been as effective now as it was then but yeah there was there some who were also not even proper international players there's a player who used to play in the circuit called shakti singh for india okay shakti singh was a domestic player for india big 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 hitter okay shakti singh was a guy who would clear stadiums all the time okay and uh, he is a kind of batsman who could have done very well under these conditions yeah because he would you know he could really really hit the ball hard Used to hear that again. I've never seen him. I've seen him play once or twice. But Amai Khurasia, Amai Khurasia again. He had the he had the thing about him. So yeah. So Shakti basically, as I said, the reason I go back to Shakti is he's he's trained fast bowling with Dennis Lilly. Okay. He's hit fourteen sixes in a match in a in a first class innings. Okay. He had that game. You know what I mean? It's a kind of game that would have worked perfectly in the IPL. and the tragedy of it is he literally i mean he finished off in 3 4 maybe three, just 3 4 years ahead of the ipl but yeah amai khurasi a very very uh, this thing that except that not too much i mean not too many yorkers i mean the international fast bowlers would bother him a bit um what do you think of uh, let's say england who do you think would have been? i mean they have a great team now but of course they had very bad one day teams yeah, yeah. before but england had terrible one day teams i'm just trying to think of the england teams in the 90s i mean darren guff would have been a fit always darren guff is again a perfect t20 player for Busy me the ball very effective fast bowler low late order batsman gun fielder he was a chris lewis and dermot reeve for me huh? chris lewis and dermot reeve chris lewis again chris lewis Again, it's very interesting. With Chris Lewis, whoever's worked with him has said Chris Lewis had all the talent in the world. It depended on whether he was switched on or off, you know. And in play in a team like the IPL, it's like that. Chris Lewis would either do very well or he'd just disappear because you know temperamental players. The IPL does not give you time to recover. If you go into a funk, you're done. You know what I mean. So that's the thing with somebody like Lewis. Dermotry useful, but I don't think. in your fancy i believe that in the ipl you've got to have one if you are a true all-rounder you've got to be able to be good enough to be picked on one so i can't see downtree being picked as a fast bowler in indian conditions that's the only thing you played it in the uk yeah definitely useful player um west indies yeah i mean where do you start i mean obviously i think wip would have been absolutely amazing but uh, even after with the other players i think would have been very good also in the ipl carl hooper because carl <laughs> hooper had that ability to be able to smash the ball he could bowl very effective off spin terrific fielder there was a fielder player who used to play for uh, 
West Indies in the early 80s to mid 80s, and in that you know huge fast bowling lineup, he'd get chances limited over matches. Elvin Baptist. Baptist, the player called Roger Harper. Yes, Harper of course. Could hammer it. Harper could hit a long ball. He had. He was the best fielder in the world in his time. Mid 80s, he was the best fielder in the world. Even Azhar was not as good a fielder as him. And he was a terrific, terrific. He was a good bowler for the kind of containing bowling you needed for that. So very often, you know, traditional players may not do that well as players like Harper was built for limited over cricket. He was built for the T20 game. You know, whereas a Walsh, I think, I, I think Wallace King, uh, Wallace I mean, King again, great hitter, that 79, you know, match, terrific hitter. For example, I don't think Michael Holding would be that great a T20 bowler because he needed to bowl full fast and in, in our kind of conditions that may not have always worked. But I think, for example, Andy Roberts would be very good. Marshall would have been very good because yes. the way his action worked, he would have really, really been excellent for this format. He would have been brilliant. I think Clive Lloyd also was a you know, yeah, great very strong hitter. And remember Clive Lloyd in the time before all this would actually bowl pretty well as well. Yes. Clive Lloyd was a bowler before his he didn't have to bother about bowling anymore. He was also a very good fielder. Yes, Clive Lloyd was also a very good fielder. So was Wave. I mean the entire West Indies team. I think West Indies is isn't the nation is built for T twenty. Always has been. Yeah. Even if you go further back with I mean that's what Vasim used to cry about. He used to say that these guys are like their bodies like that. Vivian Richards, he said, I've never seen Vivian Richards enter a gym in his life. They were just naturally so built like that. They were bodies to die for. So yeah, West Indies, again, you could you could fill up two T twenty teams with even today with 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 the talent that they have. Yeah. In T twenty. It's it's a pity that they can't play together because of all their other issues of financial compensation and other things about the Western board. And look, actually, to be honest with you, I feel that for them to keep it together so long, given the fact that they are six, seven different countries, is give them credit for that. It's not that easy. Yes, absolutely. We can, we as Indians, we definitely appreciate that. Yes. <laughs> um, so the country that we left, New Zealand and Sri Lanka. New Zealand actually had quite a few distinctions. So Sri Lanka, though, obviously, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, Murli definitely played in his in his thing. Chamindavas and Murli played not in their primes, but in their primes, they would have been even better. I mean, you got the last of it. But if you look at it that way, go even further up. I mean, some of the best hitters of the ball are players who played in the early 80s for them. There's player called Roy Dias, who's one of the mm -hmm. finest batsmen I've had the privilege to watch. And Roy Dias was absolutely magical batting out there. But even if you take, I mean, Jayasuriya has played, Kalu would have been very effective wicketkeeper batsman, could hit the ball a bit. Jayasuriya has sure. obviously played himself. They had, they had the team. Mahanama was a good player. Ranatunga, I think his game was not suited to a T20. He, you see, in T20, either you've got to be able to, you, you need to do at least two of three. You've got to bat and field, you've got to bowl and field, you've got to bat and bowl. And if you do all three, fantastic. And Ranatunga could do one out of three. He could bat. And even batting, he couldn't. Ranatunga is not a 140 strike rate, 150 strike rate guy. And so. Arvind the De Silva is, I would guess. That is oh, oh, terrific. Definitely. I'd put Arvinda definitely there as one of the players who could play. Arvinda could hit any attack in the world this time. And like Lara, Arvinda had that. Amazing ability to be able to manipulate fields. Yes. And that's something that very few batsmen have. I don't know if you remember, but two of my first, I mean, one of my most, I mean, the two, my two most favorite World Cups, perhaps because of my age, was the 91 World Cup and the 96 World Cup. 92, and 92, 92 World Cup. 92 yeah. World Cup and the, even the Pakistan one, but in 92 World Cup, I, I still watch, I was still watching old videos and it never gets old. That that tournament, it's great cricket, and of course, ninety six World Cup where there were two games. One was of course the that Sri Lanka game, which which Arvind just took it away from us with those cover drives. If you remember, Eden Gardens, he was splitting the field, risk free shots, but he was keeping the run rate moving. And then there was the Brian Lara innings against South Africa, where he took to Simcox and just peppered the offside with brilliant shots. 
No, no, absolutely. And class action. I remember when Jayasuri and Kalavatarne got out early at the Eden Gardens. And they, you know, people were saying, this is not that kind of field. You can't play what they did to Delhi in Delhi with us. Yes. And then Arvinda just, it's the way he batted. It's the ferocity of his counter-attack that just took India by completely by surprise. Absolutely. I mean, at that time, they, everyone expected the batsman to sort of lie low and this thing, the way he counter-attacked. And similarly, Lara, I mean, these two are in many ways just peerless batsmen, absolutely incredible batsmen. Incredible. And again, it's a good thing you brought up that 96 game. I mean, any other team which had Kalavitarna and uh, Jaisuriya get out in the first over, and you're right, those two, the, the two deliveries that they got out to, those would have been sixes in a smaller ground. Yeah. Just Eden Gardens that they got caught. No other team on a World Cup semi-final would have kept on batting like exactly that way with two of their best players gone. But they did it and India folded. 250 yeah. was too much on that pitch. Absolutely. And see, I'll tell you one thing. It's a very interesting thing. So, England in 2016 onwards, England's World Cup T20, their T20 style is dependent on the fact that they feel players will not uh, get out. You, you rarely have, there's only one out of 15 days that all 10 players get out. So, there, the England team is, because they're bad deep, the idea is to keep attacking as long. You lose one, you lose two, you lose three, you keep attacking. But for Sri Lanka to do it in 1996 and in a 50-over match, you have to say it takes a lot. It takes a lot to do that. It does. So, let's look. the last team left is New Zealand. And I would, of course, Richard Hadley would be a great player uh, because of his all-round abilities. But there would be Jan Smith, right? Who was also a big hitter for those days. Sorry, uh, sorry. Uh, could you repeat that once again? Sorry. So there was, also, of course, Richard Hadley. So I was talking about New Zealand. So there was, of course, Richard Hadley. But then there was, if you, Richard Hadley is an obvious choice. But somebody like Jan Smith, who was their keeper, if you yeah. recall, who was a very big hitter for those days. Ian Smith was a big hitter. They, they, they had, they had. In fact, I feel that Chris Keynes again played a little bit, but uh, ICL and he was tainted. Chris Keynes would have been a phenomenal player. His father, Lance his Keynes, father. would have been a really good player. These are all, I think, the finest of all these. One of the finest batsmen I've ever seen would have been a terrific T20 batsman. He invented a format of his own, Martin Crow. Martin Crow would have killed this format. Absolutely killed this format. He was built to take the game forward. And it's a tragedy that we lost him early, but he was an incredible player. He, he indeed was. I mean, the 92 World Cup. Um, his I mean, people people only remember the great the great batch, but he was also a very critical part of their batting lineup. Yeah, in yeah, that absolutely. tournament. Yeah, absolutely. And, he was, he and, was you know great batch did the early hitting. The one match Crow sat out even as a captain. Yeah, the time <laughs> was in field. Yeah, Inzamam went berserk. Yep, well, that was that was an interesting conversation. It always feels good to discuss. Nineties uh, uh, and early two thousands cricket with somebody who's seen it. I mean, we we spend a lot of time discussing cricketers of today, but uh, and I always feel bad that that cricketers of that age they couldn't make the money that they kind of deserved because they just missed the boat, just missed the boat by a few years. It's see, I'll I'll be honest, Arnab. Uh, it's it's a it's a bit like, and I'll be honest, uh, three four years senior to us, the people who were in our university, our alma mater, Jadapur University, who were there before the 90s, late mid to late 80s, the people who graduated. And they went to those public sector jobs and they were so secure in them that when liberalization happened, they never had a chance. A lot of the Indian cricketers who finished in 2003, 4, 5 are exactly like that. They know that they were tantalizingly close to that. And I know many of them. So yeah, I know exactly how frustrating it can be for them. You know, They are like literally the lost generation. Gavaskar doesn't worry, you know, he finished off 21 years before the IPL. But yeah, from somebody like a Jadeja or somebody like, you know, people like that, it's so close yet so far. Yes, so that's exactly. I mean, there's some people like a Gavaskar or a Kapil Dev. I mean, of course, Kapil Dev would have been a champion in whatever he played in. And again, of course, the financial compensation never was at that scale. But they're still, I would say, okay. But that there's some people who just, just, Never made it to the top, and you know the Atul Bedades of the world, or maybe the Shane Lees of the world, or Jan Harvey's of the world, who could have been millionaires in this day and age, with the kind of skills they had. 
there was not like even 50 overs was too much for that so they they had a 10 overs 7 overs they would have been very effective and then after that that's why they and that's why i always think of wasim akram's batting wasim akram of course he had a triple century but in general he he could never last beyond 7 8 overs but 7 8 overs he would be devastating yeah yeah he could i mean as they say he could hit a long ball and that's important in this format exactly so thanks a lot jai for this was a t- tremendously interesting conversation we covered a lot of topics lot of sports and thanks a lot for coming to coming to my podcast absolutely my pleasure thank you for being there okay all right that's our episode for today and uh, one of those episodes where i'm so glad to have our front row seats ex- exclusive front row seats for so i do hope you enjoyed listening to it um, and again thank you so much to joyda and i hope that uh, someday there's a gorgeous coffee table book with all the amazing, amazing anecdotes and stories that uh, you share with us on twitter and uh, to our listeners until next time stay home stay safe